Welcome to ACFM, the home of the weird left. My name's Kia Milburn, and today I'm joined by Nadia Idle. Hello. And Jeremy Gilbert. Hello. And today we're talking about comedy or sitcoms about work. This is a spin-off of our uh, main episode we did, our full trip on comedy. And we thought it might be interesting to talk about different sitcoms that have been based in the workplace in order to sort of see if they can tell us something about how work has changed or representations of work have changed. It also, of course, functions a little bit like those shows in which people mentioned, do you remember Spangles? But we'll ride that one out. <laughs> you, I think you've got, to, you've got to explain that reference like, for the, <laughs> the large numbers of especially international listeners who have no idea what why. We mentioned. Yeah, what are you talking about, Gear? Well, you see, there's a, there's a big um, constituency of shows which just relate, which just consist of talking heads doing nostalgic callbacks to their to their childhood. So perhaps about the 1970s, Spangles were a form of sweets that you might have eaten at that time that no longer exists. We're going to be doing a bit of that. You know, I enjoy. To- I really enjoyed the microdose we did on films about strikes. Partly because it gives you an excuse to go away and watch some stuff. I think, oh, yeah, I really, really enjoy that. So there'll be a little bit of that going on. But we're going to try to also include a little bit of social analysis, of course. Well, at least that's what I've got in my head. What about you two? Well, I'm I'm doing it because you wanted to do it. That's how it works <laughs> around here, people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're doing this because Keo's really enthusiastic about it. And, you know, why not? It is a present to Keo. Yeah, we love yeah, you. We, if you really want to do it, we're going to do it. <laughs> And he's absolutely enthusiastic about this subject, so you are all listeners going to have to come along with, <laughs> for the ride. It was recently my birthday, dear listeners, so <laughs> Nadia, Jeremy, and all of people listening to this, this is my birthday present from you. Fantastic. <laughs> um, of course, um, you know, ACFM is just not, not only about... Um, giving me what I want, although, you know, in my head, it's mainly that, to be honest. Yeah, that's, the first, that's what I thought it was about. <laughs> <laughs> it's part of a wider ecology of things, of course. We have these, our main our main trips come out every month, and we've just started to revamp our newsletter. So you can get a newsletter every month, which, which revolves around the theme of our main trip. That's got, like, bonus contents, bits we couldn't fit in, other thoughts that we might have around this topic. Bits, little bits of writing from uh, the ACFM Extended Universe, etc. So sign up for that, novara.media slash ACFM newsletter. You can also listen to the ever-expanding ACFM playlist on Spotify. Just search ACFM on Spotify. Uh, we added uh, a, a few, um, a strange eclectic mix of songs for our episode on comedy. And of course, ACFM comes out on Novara Media. Um, so if you want more content from ACFM, if you want to support what we do and what the wider Navarra Media project um, does, which we think you should support, then um, go to novara.media slash support uh, and, and, and sign up and give us some money. 
Okay, where should we start with this? Perhaps we should define what a sitcom is, first off. Well, I think it's the 50s. It starts to be used. The term situation comedy just refers to, but we all know what a situation comedy is. It's, it's a sort of comedy. It's a fictional narrative. It's a comedic fictional narrative about some characters who know each other. It's an odd term, really, isn't it? Because situation, because the situation that the situation comedy could be about could be anything. I think, like, you know, when the term was being used in the 50s and early 60s, there was some idea that there was something specifically comedic about the situation. It was like the odd couple and things like that with this sort of idea. But by the end of the 60s, at least, the term sitcom just means a sort of a comedic, episodic, fictional narrative, doesn't it? It's about what it's contrasted with. So it's not a crime drama. Yeah. And it's not, you know, some kind of epic uh, trilogy with some kind of hero's adventure. It's different to those things. Well, it's, a, it's not sketch comedy. I mean, in terms of, in like yeah. in TV land, the distinction is within comedy, the, the distinctions are stand-up, sketch, and sitcom. So stand-up is just a comedian telling jokes on a stage. Sketch, sketch comedy is just individual humorous scenes, and sitcom is like a story that's supposed to be funny. Yeah, so it's like um, comedy around a repeated situation or something like that, isn't it, basically? So which which tends to go on, although it does tend to be episodic. Some sitcoms are built on each other. I suppose like the really earliest sitcoms in the UK cross that boundary between um, sketch comedy and situation comedy. So ha- Hancock's Half Hour is a little bit like a sketch. It's got definitely got its roots in that music hall variety sketch show comedy, but it's got a consistent cast of characters. And my sort of contention when I raised this as a as a possible uh, microdose was that the early sitcoms tended to be based around the family or the home, and then they gradually work comes into it. We had a bit of discussion about that, but whether that's true or not. And that's what we're focusing on today. We're focusing on sitcoms about work. And we're going to start in the 60s. Surprise, surprise. Go, Kia, you can, you can kick us off. Come on. Well, in the US, the comedies about work start with the Dick Van Dyke show, which is like 1961 which is the first one where the workplace is one of the situations that gets repeated. The work being done is writing a fictional comedy show. That's something that comes up over and over and over and over again, basically. In the Dick Van Dyke post, the story is that they're, is that they're making a TV show. Yeah, they make, they're right, they're, it's the writing room for a fictional, a fictional sitcom, I presume, no, actually. I didn't yeah. know, I didn't yeah. know that. I mean, that's very interesting. Well, it is because it comes up later on. We're going to talk about 30 Rock in, in a bit, etc., which is you know, very much the same. Yeah, yeah, but that sort of means all those like meta comedies about you know the sign the the whole Larry David project. Yeah, yeah it's a lot less yeah. original. Yeah, than it you might think it is if you know that the Dick Van Dyke show. I was at the Dick Van Dyke. I thought he was just you know a sort of suburban family sitcom. That's really interesting. I think it's one where basically there's two repeated situations: his home and his work, and that's what was the innovation in it originally i think yeah but the work is he's a com- comedy writer so yeah. well i mean you know write what you know and basically yeah yeah sure writing about their own lives aren't they the constant yeah, yeah. repeating trope the first sitcom we wanted to talk about is a uk one Steptoe and Son, uh, which is, well, basically that's set in a workplace, which is also the home in it because they're rag and, rag and bone men, basically. Yeah, and a rag um, and bone man for, for non-British listeners is 
It's basically a rag and bone shop would be a junk shop, and the rag and bone men were people who would go around the streets, like offering to take away any junk, basically, and collecting junk that, they, that then they would sell at their junk shop. It was still, I think it's pretty much dead now. I guess up until about, I think the 90s is the last time I can remember seeing a rag and bone man in a British street. But yeah, these guys, you know, in like, you know, old trousers and flat caps would walk down the street shouting, any old, any old iron, that was the cry, because their main money, mainly what they dealt with is scrap metal. So they'd walk down the street saying, any old iron, any old iron. Do you remember Spangles? <laughs> <laughs> Yes, um, <laughs> Rag and Bone Men used to love Spangles. It was their thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so basically, it's set in in their yards. They still exist, Jim. If I uh, the other day I was getting rid of a getting rid of some metal, it was a big radiator, and you just put it outside, and it was gone within a couple of hours. Not by the Rag and Bone Man. And people take stuff, but they don't walk down the street. Do they walk down the street crying it, crying it out? No, no. They can't they can't get it out anymore because they've got too many spangles stuffed into their mouths. Well down well down here in London people just nick catalytic catalytic converters from yeah, your that's car. A contemporary it's rag and it's bone a different man. it's a different there's a different operation. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what happens in this sitcom? <laughs> well basically it's like an intergenerational conflict is like the basis of it. There's an old rag and bowman and a young rag and bowman who's his son. It sort of was you. It was you to sort of dramatise, as you're saying, generational conflict, wasn't it? Because the old man, even though they're really poor, they're also they're small. They are small, independent business people. They're not workers, in a classic sense. And and the old guy is a Tory. <laughs> that, that's one of the things that comes out at one point. Whereas the young guy, you know, considers himself a socialist. He's a sort of caricature of that. The phrase I'm, in, I'm now inventing is lumpen petty bourgeois. He's a caricature, like oh, Steptoe Senior is like a caricature of a sort of lumpen petty bourgeois. Which, as is Alf Garnet a bit later on, actually. They're sort of, they're, they are, they're these sort of hate figures for that post, for the kind of liberal, progressive boomers. It's upwardly mobile, but sort of politically sort of centre-left boomers. The, the real hate figure for them is these, their image of these old guys who like lived through the 30s, but they're still basically, they're sort of proto-Thatcherites, like individualistic, racist, Tory. It's an interesting trope, actually. Mm. And the whole sort of sense of the film is like, is that Harold, the young one, it's like trapped, basically. He feels trapped. He really wants more out of life. He always, you know, he's got this yearning for escape somehow. It's like real sense of claustrophobia, including on, on, on the set as well, which is like, you know, basically all of this 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 junk almost like engulfing them. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and so you could sort of read it onto, onto that sort of generational, probably like slash class sort of situation of the of like basically improved prospects amongst the post-war working class. Do you know what I mean? Which Harold, the young one, is not doesn't really have access to, because in the show he he's left school to work for his old man, so he hasn't got much education. He totally he constantly wants to better himself. Do you know what I mean? There's a famous scene where um, Albert, the old man, the dirty old man, this is Spangles, <laughs> isn't it? You dirty old man. <laughs> um, he's like um, he's uh, he's having a go at, at Harold, the young one. For reading books, he said, "Oh, too, 
it's dangerous reading books, you know, book book reading leads to communism, he says. <laughs> and it's that sort it of It does. Like, it does. It's a fair accusation. Well, it does. I mean, it's probably yeah. it. Well, I mean, what is that apart from, you know, basically anti-woke critical race theory, conspiracy theories, you know, from the 1960s, you know what I mean? Is it funny? I watched one the other day and it was sort of funny, but like, it's like dramedy really, you know, that like, it's really has got, it's got a, it's quite black and sort of the, the general feeling is of like, you know, claustrophobia and like, you know, frustrated people rubbing up against each other. Although they do love each other, I think. But Well, it's very bleak. I mean, it's always interesting to think about what that kind of popular cultural text is supposed to be doing for the audience, isn't it? And I think mm. you you are supposed to feel, you're supposed to dislike Steptoe Senior and you're supposed to feel sorry for his son. And you're supposed to feel sort of feel superior to both of them, and you're supposed to feel happy about the fact that you, the viewer, have probably been more successful than Steptoe Junior has at, you know, at enjoying the fruits of post-war social mobility. Because statistically, you probably have, and that that is what it invites you to. And it is sort of mournful. I mean, it's very well remembered because I mean, it is there is something quite profound i mean it's often it's sometimes compared to sort of beckett because it's yeah, often it's yeah. often it's off or pinter yeah, or something yeah. like that yeah. yeah yeah it's these sort of two-handers with these often quite a, elliptical dialogue and quite minimal dialogue and it is sort of it's sort of existentially dark but against the backdrop of a you know quite sort of optimistic structure of feeling in the broader culture so it is really interesting for all those reasons. You know, the 60s, as I guess a lot of us know by now, the 60s is this sort of golden age of people who had benefited from the expansion of not just the universities, but the art schools, the drama schools, various forms of arts funding in the post-war period. People coming from very poor working class backgrounds, you know, getting careers, doing things like writing TV. And this is the kind of thing they're writing, really. They're they're sort of reflecting on the condition of people who haven't been as lucky as them. But they're all, and they're also it is a way of like venting their kind of hatred of the older generation who they see as kind of holding things back and you know being stuck in a sort of interwar mentality and and being politically reactionary. But it's also it's sort of really striking from a contemporary vantage point that like Steptoe Senior is an absolutely proto-Thatcherite. They're writing this in 65, 66, but he is the proto-Thatcherite subject, the kind of working class, individualistic entrepreneur. He's what's coming. He's what's coming. He is what's coming, even though he's like the old guy. I mean, it is something I've thought, I've had occasion to think about recently and not really thought about that much before historically. The extent to which Thatcherism in, in many ways like drew on this sort of structure of feeling, which is much typical of like England in the 30s, it somehow reanimated a kind of 1930s consumerist individualism, which had been displaced by the experience of war and then post-war reconstruction. But And that is really, that is what Steptoe and Son sort of plays off a, a lot, I think. Steptoe and Son was written by Galton and Simpson, who also wrote um, Hancock's Half Hour. They're like a really famous comedy writing duo i just googled it and they're both born like you know around about 1930 so too young for the boomers but i think your argument still sort of still sort of works so they're they're basically too old for the boomers you mean too old sorry, to yes too old for the boomers so they're like in their early 30s or in the mid 30s when they're writing step two and son so they definitely are going to be more sympathetic to the harold than the alberts yeah you know what i mean 
Yeah. So it does work, that analysis, I think. Yeah. See, I told you this was interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. It's an yeah, interesting, interesting topic. Anyway, yeah. do you remember Space Hoppers? <laughs> <laughs> well, we're Space Hoppers until the early 2000s. I don't know what you're yeah, on about. My, ki- my, kids, my kids had Space I went to I'm parties sure you... with lots of Space Hoppers. <laughs> I think you can still buy Space Hoppers. This is... I know you're trying to make this into like a nostalgia trip, Kia, <laughs> but you know, there's a lot of stuff that is contemporary. So the next one on our list is uh, on the buses, uh, which I think is fair to say is not. A, a Pinteresque <laughs> influenced um, uh, uh, sitcom. The title music is so seventies. For anyone who has any kind of conception of what the seventies is, like the title, go listen to the title music of this. And we should say, by the way, at this stage, that almost everything, if not everything, on our list that we're going to be talking about today, you can probably find at least clips of on YouTube. So if you're interested in any of these things, you can go and listen to that. But the title music of Omnibuses is so 70s, and I love the idea that the BBC rejected it on the, on the, the, the its basis of saying, like, there's no way this is going to be a hit based in, like, a bus station, like, nobody's going to watch this. And then LWT, for those of us who are old, old enough to remember what LWT is, then nabbed it up, and, and yeah, it's like, it became really popular, wasn't it? I mean, it was a big hit, basically. Very much in that sort of, like, um, carry-on, bawdy, seaside comedy type of thing. If you want, um, we talked about carry-on at your convenience in our ACFM microdose on films about strikes, so we... Can't shan't explain that reference, but yeah. So it's setting a it's setting a well it's set it's setting um a home and in a bus station, and the, the protagonists are Reg Varney as Stan, the the driver of the bus, or a bus driver. So Reg Varney was quite famous, I think, at this time, and then his mate Bob Grant, who plays Jack, who's like the conductor on the bus on on the bus. I mean, it's got a little bit of an anti-authoritarian thing going on because they're basically trying to do as little work as possible so they've got some time to chat up the birds <laughs> and that the anti-authoritarian thing comes from their conflict with Blakey who's like the bus inspector that's about as far as like you know class conflict goes on it I think I think it was of that moment of the late 60s early 70s give it you know it was about people working in a heavily unionized part of what was then the public sector a nationalized industry the buses in a public service. And I mean, that was very much of that sort of moment of rising working class consciousness. I mean, by the mid 70s, it had already become notorious for its kind of casual sexism and racism. And it, it was it was a reference point, in like er, very early sort of media cultural studies texts about kind of normalized racism and sexism in in things like sitcoms it was already a sort of byword for for a fairly dated kind of comedy by the late 70s wasn't it i think uh, carrying on at your convenience is sort of direct is was it was influenced by it actually thinking about it that came out 71 it'd been on on the buses been on for a couple of years i think they were really trying to capture the the vibe of, and of on the buses in that film actually jack the conductor is a shop steward in them um, on the buses actually they're not shown as like heroes on that at all but um I watched one of the films a few couple of years ago, 
so there was a series that ran, and then in like 1977, they started doing film versions. And one of those was, I can't remember what it's called now, but it's like On the Buses on Holiday or something like that. And it was set at Pontins at Prestating on the North Welsh coast. Where was it? <laughs> it was. And I watched it because um, in the mid-80s or early 80s at some point, I went on holiday with the next-door neighbour's family, and we went up to Prestating Pontins. And I remember the guy, the blonde guy who played Jack, was the... He greeted you off the bus, basically. <laughs> he was, I think it was either in charge of it or perhaps he was just a public face of it, basically. Um, uh, so I watched it to, to see that Pontins again. Uh, and it was almost unwatchable, to be honest. It definitely, it's not Pinteresque at all. <laughs> in fact, I, wa- I watched it because I went back to that Pontins to, for, for one of those All Tomorrow Parties festivals. Oh, which one did you go to? Oh, the I one, love All Tomorrow's Parties. It was curated by Stuart Lee. It, in fact, it was the last ever one. Oh, they, right, went ban- okay. they went bankrupt as the festival was going on. <laughs> oh, the shit, yeah. <laughs> But so that's why I rewatched on the buses, and it's probably not watchable now. It's it's like not not great comedy, basically. Well, I also had a holiday in Pristatin in the early eighties, but really? not a, not at Pontins. Oh, we stayed in we stayed in a nice bed and breakfast. <laughs> Do you remember Spangles? <laughs> <laughs> they used to serve Spangles at Preston Pont- Pontins Pristatin, actually. <laughs> <laughs> they had a Spangle uh, cafe just next to the Space Hopper rank rink. I mean to say. <laughs> okay, let's move on. Good morning, madam. Are you being served? Just having a look. So is he. <laughs> Are you being served? Ran for thirteen years, according to our notes. Yeah, unbelievable. Yeah, that was a. Hu- I mean, that was a huge show in, in British TV history. Are you being served? Wasn't it? Mm. So why don't, why don't you describe that? Well, yeah, so it's Are You Being Served is set in a department store. It's a clothing store, basically a big department store with different departments in it. Yeah. Um, they mainly focus on the clothing department. Yeah. But the implication is always that the store contains many other departments. It's like a traditional yes. lot. Yeah. And, and department stores is, is a thing, and it's it's like interesting media uh, as a historical record of that because probably in 10 years' time there won't be any department stores. And there's no, a huge true. part of like, you know, it'll be a huge part of like the the concept of the British high street and how people shopped, you know, yes. and yeah. and they're all disappearing. Well, it was it was the, the are you being served was created by this this writer James Lloyd, and it's based on his. He worked at um, Simpsons of Piccadilly, which is like a big clothing department store. He worked there briefly, and it's sort of based on his experiences of that. But that shuts in nineteen ninety nine, and like a lot of these department stores are uh, shut. Um, and so, yeah, so it's sort of based on uh, a whole series of characters. It's sort of got a, like, like a class system within it, basically. So the the person in charge is Captain Peacock, a haughty middle-class man. And then, you know, there's lots of... there's lots yeah, of Whose that... military rank is used to address him, even while he's just yeah. the guy yeah. running a shot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and uh, well, above him is like uh, uh, the Grace family who own Grace Brothers, which is like the, the department store. So young Mr. Grace is often seen, isn't he? He's like he's sort of like a, a Mr. Burns type character. I seen he's like re- really rich and stingy, uh, but in this he's always got you know dolly birds hanging off his arm, etc. I'm using the, the the language of the time, obviously. You have been, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> this entire episode, dolly bird, already. meaning a, a sort of a, a young woman, um, and a, you know, who 
who looks... He has just been wanting to say birds quite a bit, so I'm going to count how many times you use that language. Uh, yeah. Anyway, it's, 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 really, it's really... I mean, the innuendos, I cannot believe how they keep a straight face when they make some of these jokes. I mean, it's just, it's just, I think, quite incredible how they managed to hold it. I, it's made me laugh, to be honest, looking, like, watching back some of it. Yeah, a lot of the humour revolves around sexual innuendo and the, impl- and the implication that, you know, that um, all of the characters, actually, including, like, unmarried women and including, you know, the, the, the character who is quite explicitly coded as gay are very sexually active. In, in, when they're not at the store, which is, you know, is is a sign of the permissive society that it was an expression of. And yeah, totally. I think it's particularly remembered, yeah, for John Inman's character, Mr. Humphreys. The, I mean, even when the show is being made, he's not young. He's like a middle-aged guy or, or older, he's sort of presented as. But he's he's very explicitly presented as gay and he's very explicitly presented as, you know, typical of a member of a sort of, of, sort of London gay culture of the post-war period. But I don't think it's ever said he's gay, is it? But like, you know, it's no. incredibly, no, no. that's no, no. the joke, basically. Yeah. No, no, they never, you never, they never come out and explicitly say it, but the innuendo is very clear. Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's, you know, he's not supposed to be in the closet. It's not supposed to be a secret to the rest of his colleagues yeah. that he's gay. It's just not something that polite people talk about explicitly. Yeah, rather than just making nods and winks, and you know, it's as it's as, it's as explicit as him, you know, making slightly you know sexual comments about you know young about men occasionally. Yeah, 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 and a lot of the humour comes out of like really pushing the bounds of of what you can get away with saying if you're not allowed to mention things, basically. But it does make it does make you laugh because I just think I, I was watching back some of this stuff and I just think like it just it's such innocent like ridiculous humor in a way yeah, but it true. succeeds at something like it's not complex it's just whether the actors pull it off or not and it's they do pull it off phrasing which, you know, I quite... <laughs> sorry I can't I can't <laughs> I can't help being transported back to the the um, era of um sexual innuendo and double entendres now anyway you, you what my point was you wouldn't get that now you wouldn't yeah. get that now and i'm not saying it's good or it's bad you know obviously like i'm sexism and racism like aside which clearly all of these shows you know were not you were not did not carry the contemporary values that we would see as progressive you know or society hadn't reached that level which we would see as you know what what's permissible to say and 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 not say and the values that that reflect however i do think that you cannot make a show today where every single show like you know the, there's a character that talks about having not being able to get up in the morning because my pussy's like an alarm clock you just wouldn't get that i don't even know if we're going to be allowed to put out this acfm saying the word pussy so much so do you know what i mean like i just think it's actually there's something there about what it must have been like. Like, we need to remember that to 10 years before that, this would have been unthinkable yes, to make yeah, these kind yeah. of jokes. No, I don't think that's I don't think that's true, actually. They tried to do it. I can't remember if it was Are You Being Safe, but some of the comedies from that time, they've tried to do it. They've tried to repeat in various ways. And it sort of doesn't work because you actually can say these sorts of things. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You have to be careful about it, but it's not the use of particular words. And it's it reminds me of, like... Um, like in the US, there's a there's a period when they bring in the Hayes Code around films, around Hollywood, etc., in which it really constricts what you're allowed to say. It sets up this thing in which you know 
in, instead of showing characters having sex, which is what you can do now on TV, on films, you get Hitchcock, you know, showing a train going through a tunnel, etc. These yeah. sorts of but things. It's, but it's that's but, but you're you're exactly proving my point, which is that today you like all of these things are permissible in theory, but it's the point that it's a quite an innocent, childish double entendre, double entendre, which is what makes it funny. Being able to say those those words. And we could talk all day about why double, you know, double entendres are central to the comedy of the 70s. Mm. In a way, they're not really at all other times. And um, I, I think it is to do with this transitional moment. You know, it's the moment of the permissive society being conscious of itself, but before mm. it's, it's fully opened up, yeah. before the sexual revolution has really completely happened. Because, you know, the... I mean, by the late 80s, it was itself an object of satire. You know, it was something that, it was that comedy magazine, Viz, you know, it's most popular mm. in, from the mid 80s onwards. It's probably one of its most popular strips was just one full, full of these really over-the-top double entendres, which was just mocking the comedy of the previous decade. Yeah, it becomes satire, it. exactly, yeah. Yes, yes, well, yes. Uh, well, I was wondering if you could offer me accommodation for a few nights. Well, have you booked? I'm sorry. Have you booked? Have you booked? I uh, know. Oh, dear. Why, are you full? Oh, no, we're not full. <laughs> full? Of course we're not full. Well, I'd like one to... moment, one moment, please. All right, do you want to talk about Faulty Towers? Well, yeah, I think Faulty Towers is interesting just because of the, the, the sort of subjectivity of Basil Fawlty, who's the main character in it. So Fawlty Towers is based in a hotel in Torquay, and so it's the, the main characters are Basil Fawlty, played by John Cleese, and his wife Sybil, and they've got a couple of people working there, which is Polly, who's played by Connie Booth, who is John Cleese's wife at the time, and they wrote it together. And then Manuel, who's like the a waiter from Barcelona, who's a subject to what would now be considered... Um, pretty um, uh, racist humour, I think. Stereotypes. It's really heavy stereotypes. stereotypes. That's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Stereotypes. Yeah, stereotyping, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and stereotypes that don't really exist about Spanish people anymore, I think, you know, of, of its time, perhaps. Uh, so the story is, that, is this, is that John Cleese was in Monty Python and they were making, they were filming one of their films, I can't remember which one now, and they stay at this hotel, the Glen Eagles Hotel in Torquay, and the, the owner of the Glen Eagles Hotel in Torquay is basically Basil Fawlty. And so the, so John Cleese sort of takes it up and, and, and uses that. And so his character is this, is that like, is he sort of like a classic of that aspirationally upward Petty bourgeoisie, basically the petty neurotic. bourgeois, definitely neurotic. But he's sort of like base. He he runs a hotel. He's sort of he's he's he basically he's 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 constantly inconvenienced by guests. It's like he'd really rather not have the guests in his house, basically. I mean, you said you wanted to talk about Basil Fawlty because he represents a sort of ideal, typical petty bourgeois subjectivity. Yeah, and there was something going on in this convergence, isn't there? Because the the kind of the the guest housekeeper, you know, the small hotelier or, or B and B owner, who is also who is just incredibly rude, like to their guests, is like does become this cliche and stereotype of uh, in British culture uh, for much of the twentieth century, and it is quite weird to think why is that, and it is partly because, it, particularly within British culture, you know, part of petty bourgeois subjectivity is the absolute sanctity of home ownership the idea you know the englishman's home is his castle and it is also a thing that goes back to victorian times actually that having to take in lodgers is a sign that you have sort of 
uh, you're downwardly mo- you're downwardly mobile. If you're someone who at some point has been wealthy enough to become a homeowner, but then you are forced to let out rooms in your home, that is a, that is a marker of downward mobility. So there's this there's all this anxiety and tension around the fact that you're supposed to be a sort of you're effectively yeah yeah this resentment, oh, but absolutely. it's around it's around the fact that you're supposed to be running a sort of service business, but. But yet, you can't quite shake the sense that the customers are invading the absolute sanctity of your exactly. home. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And you sort of resent them. And it's also that it's also just this sense that, well, before the age of like TripAdvisor and things like that, once people have made the booking and they've arrived at the holiday, like they can't. There's no recourse really. They're stuck, whether they like it or not. So it's something about this intersection between expanding forms of consumerism and kind of residual forms of indeed of, of petty bourgeois ideology really that just can't that don't really fit with this emerging consumer economy within which everybody is supposed to be um offering the, the most competitive and most enjoyable level of service to uh, to customers in every interaction they have with everybody else in the world i mean that that anxiety plays out in basil faulty in the, the anxiety about his social position i mean because he's like if somebody if he thinks somebody's his social inferior he's totally dismissive with them basically but if he and like a lot of the comedy comes out of that, like if he thinks somebody is his social superior, is incredibly fawning and obsequious, yeah. and there are famous scenes where people check in, he thinks they're they're his inferiors, and they turn out to be Lord somebody somebody, and he flips and, and you know, becomes this incredibly obsequious sort of person. And of course, that's sort of interesting, and in that, that is a characteristic of a certain subsection of the petty bourgeoisie, I think, who are traditionally thought of as the source of a support for for fascism or pujadism or something like that and we'd have to work out whether that subjectivity is still how prevalent that still is and whether that relates to to people who own their own home and therefore have some sort of assets but basically quite who are in a quite an insecure um, economic situation which is quite a large part of the well, well it's contemporary it's contemporary iteration is you know the is the pizza owner who gets described <laughs> yeah, by the yeah. Guardian North of England correspondent as a representative of working class yeah, yeah. man, like when when he's explaining why he's voting yeah. Tory yeah. in the next election, he, even though people who own pizza restaurants have always traditionally voted Tory, and this isn't a historical development of any significance. What I'm suggesting is that this place is the the crummiest, shoddiest, worst-run hotel in the whole of Western Europe. No. No, I won't have that. There's a place at Eastbourne. <laughs> so we were going to, um, unless anyone else has got anything to say about Faulty Towers, we're going to move across the Atlantic to talk about, and it, and into, well, that's like late, late 1970s, early into the, into the early 80s, we were going to talk about Taxi, which is a sitcom set in a taxi dispatcher slash taxi garage type of setup. Yeah, so it's definitely in a workplace. And are taxi drivers, um, are they employees? Are they self-employed? They're in a sort of grey zone, aren't they, I think, taxi drivers in that sort of sense. They definitely work for a taxi firm, but like then there's the bit about their, they've got the, you know, they, they account for their own. Like these days, taxi drivers hire a car and then, you know, that and get dispatched. But like basically they have to take a control of their own account sort of thing. And Taxi, I mean, this sh- it's set in New York, isn't it? Yeah, it is, yeah. I mean, Taxi is, rightly or wrongly, Taxi is remembered in the States as this being, this real sort of turning point 
in TV comedy. I think exaggerated, at least to be honest. Like given some of the precedents, you could posit, but you know, it's it, it is you know it's remembered because it of it's being much grittier than things that had gone before. It did have a somewhat darker kind of worldview. I mean, it is. I mean, calling it calling the show Taxi and making it about taxi drivers, you know, was quite deliberately sort of resonant with the film taxi driver although it's a not it's obviously much it's not supposed to be anything like as dark or nihilistic as that but it is supposed to be you know the mise-en-scene as it were is um definitely draws on that a little bit but it's also this idea that they do that the characters do form a sort of community like uh, despite working under conditions that are incredibly individualizing and incredibly privatizing there's this i think the one the reason it was so loved is because it did it presented characters living in this very bleak social environment where they do this job where you're just alone in a car with a customer. You know, you're, there's no camaraderie on the job. There's no assembly line japes. There's no, there's no fun in the canteen. Well, they, but you know, when you're on break waiting for a, a, a waiting for a job, you might banter with your mates. And yet they, and none of them want to be doing that job. The character I always remember the most was the one who wanted to be, you know, the ones who the one who wanted to be an actor and. Yeah, there's one one who's like a failing boxer. Yeah, and they're all none of them really want to be doing that job, but but yeah, they sort of, you know, they sort of look after each other. There's this sense of the, a sort of possibility of solidarity despite the odds. What's but, the setting? Well, it's a taxi office. It's a taxi dispatch. Oh, it's office in the in that New taxi York. office, right? Yeah, gotcha. but there's all yep. taxis around it. So basically, they're sat around the taxis parked there. Some people are working on the cabs, fixing them, etc. So they're on their break or they're waiting to go to work or something like that, basically. But also, I mean, it means that ca- characters can be brought into the show who yeah. are who are customers of the taxi yeah. drivers. Like, you know, some a customer will leave a bag on a seat and then somebody will try to track them down and get involved in their life somehow. And for a short term, it, it introduces all these plot devices. Famously featured Andy Kaufman, uh, yeah. the subject of R.E.M.'s song Man in the Moon, yeah. biopic Man in the Moon. Latka Gravas. As his character, foreign man. Yeah, well, he was basically a character he he developed as an as a Saturday Night Live sketch. So I think it's also, I mean, the taxi is also this kind of icon of American comedy of that period because there was this relationship between the people writing Taxi and, and SNL at the, at the time when SNL was Saturday uh, Night know, Live at its yeah at its most iconic. So. Yeah, it is it is really interesting. I think it does in some ways it does I think it does really anticipate a lot of the other shows we're going to talk about actually. They are they are shows about which from this point on the kind of a lot of the shows we're interested in are shows are going to be shows which are about they're about for, for people forming relationships of solidarity despite working under conditions that are not conducive to them. Like on the buses, it's a show about it. It is a show about people experiencing forms of solidarity, but it's under conditions which in which you could not really form relations of solidarity. Yeah, you. It's the era of full employment. It's the era of Fordism. It's you know you're working in a public service where you're you know you're actually quite you're very secure, but you're also subject to various forms of discipline that you constantly have to evade to make life tolerable. You almost can't not form relations of solidarity under those conditions. But what from the end of the 70s onwards, with the breakdown of all those conditions that made those forms of solidarity possible, a lot of this com- a lot of this comedy it becomes it does become in some ways, you know, much more poignant. And taxi is really sort of famous for its poignancy because it's about people forming relations of solidarity despite working under conditions which mitigate against them. Yeah. I think. 
So Danny DeVito plays this boss character who's like the the, the ta- he's oh yes, it's Danny DeVito's in here. Yeah, and he's sort of like loathsome, really obnoxious, really horrible, and like kind of represents the boss basically in this. And then there's there's solidarity amongst the amongst the. Yeah, I forgot Danny DeVito's yeah. in. I'm pretty sure that's where that's where he's you know that's his um, breakthrough role. Yeah. yeah, I think it probably. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, he. Yeah, yeah, that's right. He played the. He played Louis, the dispatcher. Yeah, Louis. Yeah, and that yeah. was. Yeah, that was his sort of breakthrough role. And he, of course, he is. Uh, he is, and he is. He's a radical leftist, portraying a kind of mean boss, a kind of a small business tyrant, and and doing it really, really brilliantly. I watched a couple of episodes the last last week or so. This is why I don't want to do these shows. It gives me an excuse to watch a load of telly. I can say to Alice, oh, look, I'm working. Tell, and, yeah, exactly. And tell your family that you're working so you can't make dinner. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, and so the, the, I watched one where somebody had left some, like, cocaine cookies. And, like, so there's one character who's played by um, – oh, I can't remember what the actor's name is now. Um, it doesn't matter, doesn't matter. But he's sort of like, you know, he's like a drug burnout character. Like he's like a, a refugee from the 60s, basically, who's done too much drugs, etc. You know, and he's like really spacey and all these sorts of things. And I read one analysis of it, of the show, which sort of set, which sort of, sort, sort of portrayed it as, you know, um, this is all of the people, this is people from the, from the, the who are influenced from the counterculture, et cetera. Some of whom might have thought you were going to a different world, suddenly having the grim reality of having to get a, a dead end job, basically. Do you know yeah, what I mean? And yeah. that in, in some ways, that's why they all want to do other things. They, you know, they're dissatisfied that sort of the knuckling down to, um, the failure of the of the counterculture and, and nascent revolution of the 60s, 70s. That might be overdoing it, but I think it's an interesting one to, to, to position this. What's all these cookies? They were baked by a guy I fired. Beware! <laughs> Ooh, they got a nice little surprise inside. <laughs> What are you talking about? Well, I could be wrong, but I detect something in here that's a lot more powerful than oatmeal. So, Nadia, you, you're going to talk about Margaret Thatcher's favourite sitcom. Well, uh, I wanted to put I wanted to put Yes Minister on the on the list simply because I thought it fit the bill as. You know, it is a sitcom about work, as it takes place in the in the workplace, which is you know the workplace that is government. And I just think it's you know when I watched some of the sketches back, I think it's really funny. It's kind of the stuff that we know already. So in a way, like from an analytical position, like it's not, it's terrible. It really does bring to light this idea of like, you know, doublespeak of how the machinations of government can really not get things done. And my favourite bit is all the sketches about them trying to, the Prime Minister trying to bring in the 25% women quota, which like there's several bits and sketches about that. And they make these really convoluted ways of making sure that they don't instill that policy. And it's funny, but also tragic because of that. So, you know, I really loved watching it. At the end, we haven't. Re- I don't think we've explained properly what it's about. <laughs> we've done exactly. Oh, my apologies. Yeah, it's a. The, it, yes, minister is a show set in the civil service. It's set in a government ministry, so it revolves around the activities of civil ser- senior civil servants and their relationship with the minister they're supposed to be working for, who eventually becomes prime minister. And the premise of the show is the premise that the 
full-time civil service in Britain are able to almost entirely obstruct any government policy agenda they don't approve of. For American listeners, there's quite a significant difference between the American and British systems of government in in that a lot of jobs which are dependent upon the patronage of a particular administration in senior levels of government in the States. In Britain are carried out by full-time officials who are are career civil servants who don't change jobs with administrations. And the constant anxiety of professional politicians, this infrastructure of professional politicians, professional civil servants, is able to dictate its own political agendas. And that's basically what the comedy of the show is about. Yeah, so in, in a way, it seems as though it's a radical critique, but it was, as as, as Joe mentions, it was also Margaret Thatcher's um, favourite TV sitcom, um, and it was it was it, partly it's because you know it, it fit with a a critique of of bureaucracy, but also like the prevailing forms of management. You might want to say that, which and the critiques coming out of the the nascent neoliberal revolution, in particular, something called public choice theory, in which which constructs management and bureaucracy as something empire building. So what what managers and bureaucrats are really interested in is not getting doing the work that they're supposed to be managing or facilitating the work they're supposed to be managing, but instead by building a little empire for themselves, basically getting more underlings, etc. That critique was used to introduce a whole new raft of management techniques, which actually become as we go through these, they become a real central point of like you know this. These new forms of management become a real central point of critique amongst the, the, the shows about work, which we'll probably return to in a moment. You the boss? Yes? I'll call security, sir. Well, listen to me, Mr. Big Shot. If you're looking for the kind of employee who takes abuse and never sticks up for himself, I'm your man! You can treat me like dirt and I'll still kiss your butt and call it ice cream. And if you don't like it, I can change! All right, The Simpsons is a show. It's very. Obsc- I don't think anyone is going to have heard of this show. We don't need to talk about. No one's ever heard of it. Every, every, I'm going to assume. Every, we're going to assume everyone knows what The Simpsons is. Well, I mean, the only th- the thing about it, The Simpsons and work is that Homer works in a nuclear power plant. Basically. Well, it works. It doesn't really work, does he? He's like incompetent, etc. Um, he's lazy. Sleeps all day. Um, they're in a union. You know, but like the the real sort of like cliche that develops over the years is how has Homer got this huge house, this family, you know, can do all these things when Marge doesn't work and it's just one income. You know, that's not how things work anymore. And there's there's one episode in which the Frank Grimes episode in which that's sort of brought out basically where there's the new employee comes along for, who's like hardworking, but like, you know, can hardly afford anything. He lives in a in a you know, in a ramshackle apartment and he goes he gets to hate Homer. Because Homer is like this lazy, incompetent person that everybody really likes, and it's got this huge, fantastic life based on this one single salary. Basically, look, Homer, I- I'm late for my night job at the foundry, so if you don't mind telling me. Good heavens! This, this is a palace. How can how in the world can you afford to live in a house like this, Simpson? I don't know. Don't ask me how the economy works. Yeah, but look at the size of this place. I, I, I live in a single room above a bowling alley and below another bowling alley. Yeah, well, it, well, it's already knowingly retro when the show starts. The show starts in the late 80s and the, the setup, the single income Fordist household with the, with the guy working in some in, part of the industrial sector. It's already kind of a joke, like in the late 80s. It's a joke. It's a knowing wink at the audience. And it's, an, it's a knowing reference to the, a previous generation of animated sitcoms like, this, like the Flintstones and the Jetsons and, when, and uh, Wait Till Your Father Gets Home. 
And the fact that it starts off already as kind of a knowing wink on the part of a TV show, which doesn't think it's going to last more than a couple of years, uh, to its audience who are going about to get who are going through the beginning of the uh, the recession around 1990. Um, it becomes like a trope which they have to keep doing something with like for decades afterwards and i would say what well, i'm going to say one thing about the simpsons like it, the, the you know the general consensus at least among a lot of people among the simpsons is there's no point watching any of them after about series 12 they've all been rubbish i would say i actually think it went through a really bad period and the last few years of the simpsons is very uneven but there's some really interesting stuff in very recent years and there's a there's a whole episode with robert reich the whole episode is just a lecture about the history of Fordism, neoliberalism, and post-Fordism, and the crisis—you know—the the, the crisis of Fordism and, and its aftermath being the the basis for the conditions upon which you know American society you know now built. And I think it's really, um, or not, you know, built is the wrong word, but it's really extraordinary. It's absolutely extraordinary, and I, I absolutely would recommend seeing it. Well, I'm going to go and watch that episode. I'm going to go and Google it and find it and watch it. Because I am one of those people who hasn't watched it. Well, who turns over when a new episode comes on and then, but we'll still keep watching the old episodes. And, and I went to the, the to the ATP that was curated by Matt Groening. Oh, did you? Oh, uh, yeah, which was amazing because I have the T-shirt and all of the different bands are uh, drawn as Simpsons characters. Oh, my God. Yeah, That's amazing. I have that. Yeah, it was yeah, we should do a whole. Maybe we'll do. I've, I, I, I've said before we should do a whole microdays one day about the Simpsons because there's so much to be said about it, and it's such a fascinating phenomenon. It's such a fascinating phenomenon. I, I, I don't think it's hard to think of you know any sort of cultural text of my life that's emerged in my lifetime that has that level of ubiquity. You know, it's like Dickens or Shakespeare or something, and the extent to which it's has a certain kind of universality to its appeal. It's really extraordinary. That quote is going to go on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be the next Jeremy Gilbert quote. <laughs> the Simpsons is the Simpsons is like Shakespeare or Dickens or whatever you say. Talking about old Simpsons episodes is like Spangle Squared, basically, so it's always enjoyable. Anyway, let's move on. Um, so, like, the, this is interesting, actually, in our list of, of, of sitcoms we wanted to talk about, sitcoms about work. The Simpsons starts in 89, obviously it's still going now. And we have no sitcoms about work from the 1990s at all. Like we skip right to 2001. I'm sure there have been sitcoms about work. But, like, if you think about the, the paradigmatic sitcom of that era, it is Friends, isn't it? It's like people hanging out, basically. Because you guys hate the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> this well, is why. Okay, yeah, that might well be true. I mean, that was the era when sociologists and market research experts were all telling us, probably rightly, that one of the big shifts that was happening in the culture was people didn't really invest emotionally in their work anymore. They didn't form their identities around work. They formed them around consumption and leisure. And so that, and that is what is being dramatised in all those, in things like Friends or all those sort of slacker sitcoms. And there's dramas about work I can think of from the nineties. It's also probably works becomes increasingly unfunny from the nineties onwards, like in certain ways, you know. In fact, like the like nineteen ninety nine is when the film Office Space comes out, isn't it? Yeah, and like yeah, so that's that's not a sitcom. But it's like a classic film about a critique about how how boring and terrible office work is, etc. So perhaps that is when you know that's when it, the pain of work starts to override some of the some of the things that uh, you were talking about about the nineteen nineties, Jim. 
No, the thing about practical jokes is you've got to know when to stop as well as start, and now's the time to stop putting Gareth's personal possessions in jelly, all right? Gareth, it's only a trifling matter. <laughs> Here we go. We're always like this. You oh, should God. put him in custody. <laughs> <laughs> He's gonna fit in here. We're like Vic and Bob, aren't we? And, then, and one extra one. Oh God! The Office, the the iconic comedy product of the turn of the millennium, and I think most people are going to be familiar with it. It is an early one of the relatively early examples of the mockumentary. In other words, it's it's in theory what you are watching is actually a, ra- a reality TV show about life in an ordinary office building in Slough. In fact, it's it's not. It's a comedy satirising, to some extent satirising the very idea of that sort of reality TV show, but mostly satirising a certain type of personality, which the show posits as being maybe typical of middle management in that kind of context, or that kind of time in history. I think in rea- it, it was the vehicle which... Um, turned Ricky Gervais into a big star. He co-wrote it and he stars as the main character. It was regarded as like incredibly funny at the time. And it, it is obviously in terms of what it's trying to do, it's very well made. It's very well written, extremely well acted, very well directed. And, and the cinematography as well. Sorry, the way that yeah, it was filmed yeah. with the, the, the sudden close-ups to people's like horrified or deadpan faces with yes. like the camera linging on them with with also that kind of setting of the kind of like light blue and gray neon light of that kind of office was like a very specific like kind of like visual aesthetic because it was just it was grim but not in a kind of like self-knowingly grim way it was just like oh my goodness this is the office that nobody wants to work in but everybody does kind yeah, exactly. of thing Exactly. But, Keir, you have a very good line on what's wrong with The Office, I think. So why don't you give it to us? Well, well when I watched it, I was I was watching it as like a critique of, like, you know, the revelation of just how, of that mind-numbing inanity of, like, working in an office, basically. The life-sapping mundanity of it and that idea that you don't know, you know it seems like pretty pointless work. It's, it, they, it's a paper sales company, isn't it? Paper sales or something like that? Like stationery and stuff. Stationery yeah. sales in Slough. So Slough, Slough probably th- thought of in the UK as the greyest of all cities, basically, of like, you know, what's a John Betjeman line? Come bombs and, and fall on Slough. <laughs> Come friendly bombs and rain on Slough. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, so bad. Yeah. I feel so bad for people who are from Slough, which I know if you're after The Office came out, it was just like, hmm. God, they must have real difficulty on dating sites. But I was sort of reading it as, and I think this is a fair reading, which is that, you know, part of the critique is about, you know, that 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 new form of management in which like informality is used to hide the fact that you're powerless, basically. <laughs> you don't have union representation anymore, but you have a boss who's like informal, crack jokes, etc. That sort of stuff, which is like... The, it's informal the... hierarchies as well. It's basically yeah. just like the same kind of hierarchical oppression, but through let's have an office party, you know, yeah. that kind yeah, of... Yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, and like, you know, this layer, layering of like bullshit over, over the jobs that yeah. do exist, like with like pointless team meetings being made to be exactly. being jollied up and all these sort of things, dressed down Friday, all of these sorts of attempts to, 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 to make to make um work sort of meaningful perhaps, or to or to or to blur the distinction between work and life, that sort of that sort of stuff. 
but like ultimately it bottles that critique it sort of it it it, it basically draws meaning back from it that. runs away from it rather than yeah, puts yeah. it in a bottle yeah 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 i don't know what the etymology of bottle in it is but anyway that's not important that's a digression we're not doing those now um <laughs> so basically yeah it draws back from that because later on particularly when it when in the second series the slough office gets gets um, uh, gets joined together with an office from somewhere else i can't remember and like some competent managers are introduced and so all of a sudden the subject of critique is like the personal failings of david brent who J- ricky gervais is playing as like this this sort of manager do you know the subject of critique is his personal failings rather than contemporary management and like you know the the what work is is really like in an office do you know what i mean so the structural critique gets gets pulled back from i think which uh and so it shows the limits of it shows the limits of what that that sort of comedy will do i think yeah well it pull it it shifts it from being some kind of a social satire to being just a fairly misanthropic yeah portrait of an unlikable individual yeah yeah totally yeah. Also, it's just so cringy. Like in this way, like we, you know, cr- we can do a whole episode on like cr- cringe and the concept of cringe and like how it relates to comedy. But like, yeah, yeah, Ricky Gervais is so good at like that portrayal or that pastiche, and it's just like I can't sometimes can't watch it because it's just too much because it's so well done. I think there is a big element of cringe and awkwardness in it. In it, basically. With that people don't quite know how to respond to him, sort of thing. Uh, he just powers yeah, through. He just yeah, keeps yeah. on going. Like his whole personality is built on like trying to create this kind of person. And then, and then, like when he does the spin-off thing, where like he goes, he releases an album and plays like Spanish guitar or something. It's so like cringy. It's incredible. <laughs> it's like extreme cringe. This uh, social theorist Adam Kotzko wrote a book about awkwardness using like you know comedy and these and, and tv shows etc and he sort of he says it's something it's i can't quite remember the argument but it's something like when somebody won't obey social norms or social norms are not quite we're not quite sure where the social norms sit at the moment that's what the feeling of awkwardness and cringe comes from and so yeah it's it's when their boss is pretending not to be a boss the norms about how the things are supposed to work get obscured and you're not quite what, sure what to do i think that's sort of that does fit with the office to some degree. Um, the other thing about the office is that in the UK it lasts for I think it has three seasons and then some Christmas specials. In the US it just goes on for for years for like I can't remember how many years, twelve years or something like that. Well, the American version, the American remake, is one of the great examples of a transatlantic remake, and it, it becomes it's very it becomes much bigger than the British version. Yeah. And I think the general consensus is because it's it isn't as coldly misanthropic. Yeah, it's much less it's warmer, and the kind of awkward, the kind of awkward, embarrassing boss character is also kind of lovable, and, and the show doesn't hate him the way it hates David Brent. So, so it's that's his reputation anyway. I haven't watched enough of it to make a yeah. I've watched little that. bits of it. Apparently, the first series they basically just redo the first series of The Office, like almost word for word, and it it was a real. It didn't work, so they just started writing their own episodes and took it in a completely different different direction. So that's the office. Let's move on. Nadia, do you want to talk about the IT crowd? Yeah, we'll talk about the IT crowd uh, briefly. So the the premise of the IT crowd is is basically there's kind of some fictional company in London, um, and there's three like members of what's I think called the IT support 
team, but they don't get to stay in the same like swanky offices or whatever that the rest of the the company does. And it's kind of this it's obscured really what the company is actually selling because it does different things, but they don't get to be in like the swanky offices. They are in some kind of basement <laughs> somewhere, which got me thinking about like whether IT departments are still viewed in the same way or whether now like with the whole like digital explosion, um, they're kind of different. But anyway, um, uh, so it's, 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 yeah, it's unclear like what this company does, but you know, the, the, there's three characters and they are all in this basement and it's just about them being like IT guys and, and being quite awkward. I love Noel Fielding in it as like Richmond, who's the goth who lives in the server room and this is the cradle of filth. So I, that, <laughs> I find that really funny. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I guess a portrayal of like, this idea of like the sub department of like the uncool guys in like you know the the up and coming cool corporation. I mean, don't know what else to say about it except that I I find it quite funny and entertaining. And to me, it, I mean, actually, it, it feels a bit nineties as well, even though it it came out in uh, two thousand six to, to ten. Um, but yeah, it's it's re- it's really good. I think. What do you guys think? Yeah, it's sort of. It's basically it's about two geeks. And then a who, who are computer geeks, but geeks in every other form, or nerds in every other form of uh, as well, you know. And then a, a woman gets introduced into this office who doesn't know computers and is basically, you know, freaks them out, etc. That's sort of like the, the sort of gist of it, isn't it, basically? Hello, IT. Have you tried turning it off and on again? Hello, IT. Have you tried turning it off and on again? Hello, IT. Yeah. Have you tried turning it off and on again? Let's go back across the Atlantic. So the next one we wanted to talk about was 30 Rock, written by um, Tina Fey. The 30 Rock in 30 Rock is 30 Rockefeller Plaza or something, which is the home of NBC, which is where Saturday Night Live is written and performed, etc. That's the 30 Rock. And it, it basically is a, it draws on Tina Fey's Stint as head, head writer on Saturday Night Live in the early, in the late 90s, early 2000s, I think. This is in the mid 2006, this, this starts. When she originally pitched the show, though, she pitched it as a sitcom based in a TV news department. Actually, I need to do a little bit of filling in for that. So I talked about the Dick Van Dyke show earlier, which was set in a writer's room, much like 30 Rock. But there was a spin off show from Dick Van Dyke show called The Mary Tyler Moore Show which was set in a newsroom, a sitcom set in a, new, a TV newsroom. And so Tina Fey was trying to do a, a homage to Mary Tyler Moore show and ended up doing a homage to the Dick Van Dyke show, basically. I mean, I find it really, really funny. I really, I, I love 30 Rock, but it's sort of interesting in that, like, it's quite explicit in talking about, basically, because it's it never talks, it never mentions um, NBC, et cetera. But it, it, it is explicitly about that and about how corporate structures and ownership sort of interfere with the writing process, with the creatives, et cetera, and push the writing, the, the writers around and all that sort of stuff. So, like, it's that corporate structure, corporate ownership interfering with the creatives. And so that is figured in the show by this Jack Donaghy, who is the, the evil Republican manager figure basically who's like this cynical actor etc and and like he's played um, by Alec Baldwin yeah yeah to play brilliantly by Alec Baldwin and so it's like that one of the themes going on is Liz Lemon which is Tina Fey's character who's you know 
has the subjectivity of a writer on so uh, on Saturday Night Live, you know, liberal New York and butting up against Jack Donaghy as the evil, uncultured Republican. It was kind of interesting that this was made at the same, pretty much the same time as Aaron Sorkin's, like not very funny drama show, also basically based on the Saturday Night Live writers' room. So the, the idea of the SNL writers' room as like the the engine room of American culture, it's really being so glamorized at that moment in for reasons I'm, I'm not entirely sure about. But of course, yeah, but that's the call back to the first sitcom about work in America. Yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah, it is. Yeah, you are a suit. You feed off the creativity and hard work of other people and turn it into commercials and, and pie charts and triangle graphs. What's a triangle graph? I don't know. It sounded real. The uh, the show that's uh, often talked about in, in alongside uh, Thirty Rock was it was started a couple of years after and ran for a similar length of time. Also featured Tina Fey in a recurring role. It's Parks and Recreation. It's an, another American TV show about an institution. And Parks and Recreation is very interesting. It features a, the the central character is this sort of lovable Girl Scout uh, local government official, played by Amy Poehler. And the whole idea is, is, you know, it's really sort of celebrating the idea of public service and local government, municipal government as being really good things for people. And the show is quite self-conscious that coming right at the end of the long period of neoliberal hegemony, really, oh, it's not at the end. Well, actually, I would say, given that we're coming up to 2008, the show starts in 2006, sort of is the period, the end of the period of a certain kind of neoliberal hegemony, at least insofar as neoliberalism enjoys a moral authority it will no longer quite enjoy again after the 2008 crisis. It's quite self-conscious that there is something subversive just about celebrating the very idea that actually government is good, municipal government is good, public services are good, it's set in the parks and Re- recreation department. It's the park department, parks department of a small midwestern town. And you know, the, in some ways, symbolically, there is nothing less neoliberal than a park. You know, it's a public space. It's publicly owned land that isn't being used for any kind of profit-making utility, and it's just there for people to do whatever they want in and enjoy, in some way. And the show is really, really conscious of that. And it sort of plays around, makes those themes really explicit by having this, the the one really sort of slightly brilliant sort of comedic gesture it makes is to have, is to have uh, the central character's boss is a hardcore right-wing libertarian who hates the very idea of government and is always trying to make it fail and thinks that, uh, thinks that parks shouldn't exist and that... And that, uh, you know, every public service should be privatised. And that produces quite a lot of the comedy for the show. I mean, ultimately, it is a sort of comedic version of the West Wing. And it sort of becomes that by the end of the series when when the central character, Leslie, goes off into national government. And like like the West Wing, it is a fairly unashamed liberal fantasy. What if our government officials were actually just really well-intentioned people trying to make the world better for everyone? Wouldn't that be lovely? And wouldn't they do lovely things? I mean, that is basically what it's about. But it's interesting that the show first go comes on air 2006, a couple of years before Obama gets elected. And it, it's, it is absolutely an, the Obama-era American sitcom. I mean, I would say the, the Obama presidency is entirely powered by a electorate that wants to reject neoliberalism is nostalgic for a kind of golden age of public service, which Obama, with all of his oratory, 
promises he's going to restore and absolutely, in fact, does not restore and actively mitigates against any possible restoration of. And so by the end of this show's run into 2015 and towards the end of the Obama presidency, you could not make this show, you could not make a show like this again. It would it would seem absolutely ridiculous. And it's sort of, oh, it's become conscious that it is just a sort of fairy tale by the end of the show. But it is really, really interesting. It's really interesting for that, as I've said, because the show, the show's makers are very conscious that they are doing something that seems politically radical at the time just by saying, well, parks are good, actually. So definitely worth watching. Um, the next one on our list is a, is a sitcom called Party Down, which I think I'm the only one who's, who's watched it. There are only a couple of series were made in 2009, 2010. I wanted to talk about it because it's, it's one of those sitcoms about precarious work or the or the gigification of work to some degree i think so, so the setup is this it's um a, a set of uh, actors comedians and writers who all work as waiters for a catering firm and so that allows them to go into different you know basically go into different environments but with the same set of, cu- of customers and sort of people outside characters to interact with them etc which is sort of quite good for a for a sitcom but like lots of the humor comes from the difference between what those the lives of the people involved and how they think of themselves so they're all none of them thinking of themselves as waiters obviously they're actually actors and they're you know they're going off for trials and stuff like that there's one episode in which which really figures this really really well this sort of distinction between the way they think about themselves and what their actual lives consist of in which um one of the characters gets a really tiny bit part in a in a in a show with one line and then she creates this huge backstory in which the the character is this actor who um you know has got this really full life etc and then what they finally get through to say well so she's an actor this but what 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 what's her name she says well in, in the script she's just called whore and my one line is looking is free but touching is going to cost you and then they get into this huge argument go well look that she's not an actor she's a whore and that's what your character is and she's they gets into this big thing about hang on a minute they're, well are we actors and comedians or are we waiters do you know what i mean it's like what counts is it that the way that we think about ourselves in life or is it what we do every day and it's obviously like basically portrays work as this sort of like horrendous painful thing basically that they have to go through because it's meaningless and they don't want to be doing it they want to be doing something else but of course they can't do something else because they basically just need the money sort of thing but it sort of figures this sort of like the changing nature of work to some degree. But although, of course, like in taxi drive, in taxi, sorry, not taxi driver, in taxi, all of the work, all of the all of the taxi drivers want to be doing something else and think of themselves as something else. So perhaps it's a, a recurring trope. I had a line on the show. Looking's free. Touching will cost you. Well, I'll talk about another um, another American liberal fantasy sitcom about a public institution that also goes on an interesting political journey. This is Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which ran from 2013 to 2021 and is a sitcom about a a group of police detectives working at a precinct in New York. And of course, the absolute fantasy of the show is that this perfectly multicultural range of characters, including their black gay senior officer, now, are progressive liberals who would ne- who never do anything like remotely 
reactionary. I mean, it's a lovable show. It's a lovable ensemble cast. There's almost nothing in it. The show basically has nothing at all to say about the politics of policing Like for most of its run. It's not about that, really. It, it really is a sort of, it's very much building on parks and recreation. It's a show for liberals who want to watch a sort of fantasy of people working in a government institution being well-intentioned and caring for each other. My 12-year-old daughter has a phrase for a kind of show that she likes, and it is people who work together but treat each other as a family, and the show sort of plays on that really hard. What's really sort of fascinating about the trajectory of the show is that apparently the cast or the writers or all of them got heavily radicalised by, I think, really particularly the second wave of BLM around 2020, because the final show, series of the show is all sort of responding to BLM. And I can't remember the exact plot details, but basically uh, at least one, I think several of the characters end up leaving the police and the show sort of ends up concluding that indeed the previous like seven series have just been a fantasy and that you can't really reform the police. I mean, it had been running for a long time already, but my understanding is they sort of took a collective decision to bring the show to an end because they'd all been radicalised by BLM and thought that you just couldn't, it was too much of a fantasy and they were sort of reproducing cop ideology by making this show. When I got stopped the other day, I wasn't a cop. I wasn't a guy who lived in a neighbourhood looking for his daughter's toy. I was a black man. A dangerous black man. That's all he could see, a threat. And I couldn't stop thinking about my daughters and their future and how years from now, they could be walking down the street looking for their kids' moo and get stopped by a bad cop. And they probably won't get to play the police card to get out of trouble. There's politics to being a cop, but I wasn't harassed for being a cop. I was harassed as a black man. I mean, the, I would say the show is really the thing it's closest to is something that like, it's basically Star Trek, the Star Trek, the next generation, like transposed into an imaginary New York police precinct. It's that kind of vibe with the kind of the kind of senior figure as this sort of perfect liberal father and all the other characters, uh, his wisecracking but lovable children symbolically. But as a cultural artefact, it's really, it's fascinating. And what happens to it is sort of fascinating. As is the next show we're going to talk about, Silicon Valley, which is the the great kind of comedic attempt to get to grips with the, that bizarre phenomenon of the tech sector in its imperial homeland rather than in the basement of a anonymous corporate building. So this show runs from 2014 to 2019. And like, what's really interesting is let's say what it is because I didn't say I didn't say what it is. So basically, it's about um, uh, you know a a classic tech startup company in somebody's garage, not actually in in a in a house um, uh, where startups can go and live and 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 and, you know they can uh, synergize each other, et cetera, et cetera. It follows this one startup which gets incubate, incubate, incubator. Yes, that's it. That's the word. That's the word. And uh, it gets really, really huge, and then it, you know, basically it crashes and it gets huge again. Um, And one of the things that's really interesting about it is that it, from 2014 to 2019, or perhaps before that, perhaps they were writing this in 2013. The general public attitude towards tech and Silicon Valley, et cetera, changes basically. And the show itself becomes much, much darker as it goes on. This sort of almost quite optimistic sort of version of like what startup culture is. By the end of it, the show is very much concerned about the platforms having huge control over our lives, etc. 
and basically the platform's being evil <laughs> to, a, to a large degree. So what, one of the things that really, really strikes me in this is that like, I think the moral center of the show is this character called Gilfoyle, who's this cynical, cod satanist libertarian but like a right libertarian you know he's sort of like the one who who maintains his moral core as of a, as the, the the main the main character basically gets you know becomes evil and then sort of realizes his evil right at the end etc well he's a he's a hacker he's, he's a libertarian hacker yeah, libertarian, who's probably into yeah. things like discordianism and flirting Absolutely, with yeah. sort of nick landianism but he never buys into sort of corporate ideology yeah. so he goes from being this like slightly sinister character because he's a right-wing libertarian to being you know somebody who's actually maintains a sort of anti-capitalist critique i mean i think he is quite clear he's, i think of people like oh, what's that guy the uh, Janier, you, the you are not a gadget guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, people like Jaron Lanier and some of the people around things like the Electronic Freedom Foundation. Like, there are some of those guys who, at certain points, they have flirted with right wing libertarianism, but some of them have not just become kind of sort of fash like Nick Land. Some of them have become much more left wing in recent years through their sort of anti capitalism. I mean, it does sort of track that. I think it's true, actually. I wrote an academic article a couple of years ago, which was partly just tracking the different waves of optimism and pessimism around. You know the the internet revolution since the nineties, mostly amongst academic writing, and I think it's the, the the period of the show's run happens during a transition point from a period of relative optimism, which is sort of coincides with the moment at which, like in Britain, you know the, the Jeremy Corbyn movement is about to emerge, basically because of Facebook. I would say through to the present moment when people are much more pessimistic about monopoly platforms. As you said, it's really interesting. I think it does track that shift in a really interesting way. Finally, we're going to talk about the show that starts a year after that one, 2015 to 21, the great left-wing American sitcom of our time and possibly of any time, Superstore. The show's set in a big box store, like a Walmart or something like that. But of course, in the story, it eventually gets bought out by a platform company, an internet company like Amazon or something. And it tracks the lives of the people who work in the store, their relationships with each other, their relationships with work. One of the characters eventually you know, gets promoted to, 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 to a sort of senior corporate job. Another character is a kind of central character, is a downwardly mobile son of kind of Ivy League professionals who dropped out of law school, but he ends up becoming a, a union organiser from his position as a worker. And I would say is the most explicitly anti-capitalist show of that of sort of sitcom I've seen, actually. I can never remember seeing that there probably are forgotten examples from the 70s and 80s. I mean, there were probably episodes of things like Welcome Back Cotter in the States, which we could have talked about, which were that explicit. But it is really, really explicit. I mean, it's worth watching for only that reason. We 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 only started watching it at home because my older daughter had been watching it and it was the only thing we could persuade the youngest to watch other than The Simpsons or, or Brooklyn Nine Nine. But she um but we all sort of we all got really into it and I was sort of amazed I hadn't read more about it once it finished because it is the show that it is that the, the sort of tries to track the structure of feeling of sort of millennial precarious leftism and make comedy out of it. It's really interesting. I've only watched um, series one and 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 half of series two, and I'd watched like most of series one, and then we were having a, a meeting yesterday about like, well, what should we talk about? And you started saying how anti-capitalist it was, Jim. I was going, 
is it really? I don't get that. Then I went back to watch a couple of episodes and they were about when they, they all go out on strike, basically, because the, the manager gets sacked. Be, the manager of the store gets sacked because he, he does something kind for somebody who's giving birth, etc. Oh, no, I see what you're talking about. Yeah. They fired Glenn. What? Yeah. So um, about that walkout. Mateo, Glenn got fired. We're walking out. You coming? Yeah. Uh, yeah, which leads us on to the, the next show I wanted to talk about, which is Atlanta, which is set in the city of Atlanta. Uh, and it sort of follows a, a series of characters around. The main protagonist is called Earn, and he's got to earn, man. He's got to, you know, he drops out of business school, I think, gets back to, to, to Atlanta, and he's just, you know, he's got to work out. He's got to hustle his way to get some money, basically, to, to look after his kid and these sorts of things. His friends are like Paperboy, who is a who is a, a rapper who basically gets a hit record, which takes the the, the subsequent series off in, in, in different directions because Earn becomes his manager, etc. And so it's got that similar sort of stoner aesthetic, absolutely, as high maintenance, but also that sort of like, you know, having to earn somehow, you know, to get through, etc. It's got that Afro-surrealism, so it's got that absurdism. Basically, what makes it special is that it's got that sort of raw realism, basically, that you might associate with with the, the sensibility of hip hop. But it's, it's got a real Afro surrealist absurdism to it, which which does add comedic elements to it. I think. Uh, hey man, hey, where you been? Look, we need to get out of this club because I'll punch somebody in the face, man. You get our money. Um. Man, fuck this man. Like he. He only gave us $750, man. I'm sorry. Fuck that. We're getting our fucking money, man. The last two I wanted to talk about is, one is this this series Corporate, which is 2018 to 2020, which is this, basically, you know, if you want an anti-capitalist critique of of corporations, at least initially you'd think you're going to get it. It's like this really quite nihilistic show about an evil corporation called Hampton DeVille, cartoonishly evil. The boss is cartoonishly evil. I guess sometimes I feel like this can be sort of a confrontational work environment. Hey, but Hampton DeVille encourages aggressive confrontational criticism. Why don't you like confrontation? Defend your position. Oh, uh, no. I mean, I think confrontation is a good thing. It's just sometimes confrontation hurts my job performance and damages my personal well-being. Uh-oh. Well, if you can't manage your emotions, Matt, what makes you think you're qualified to manage people at this company? It tries to take on board and critique lightweight anti-capitalist sorts of sensibilities so it has a one of the episodes has this character who is sort of like a sub-banksy sort of anti-corporate sort of activist who then gets sort of sort of sells out and creates Hampton DeVille create anti-capitalist products for the protesters and these sorts of things you know the the show is really good on that like on repeating those things from from like the office and shows like that about the soul-destroying nature of working for corporations, etc., and in fact, yeah. So there's a little bit of a callback to like Office Space as well. You know, twenty years earlier, although it's much darker than Office than Office Space. In Office Space, the film, the escape is manual labor. There's no idea of that anymore. Like, you know what I mean? But what's interesting about it is, well, there's a couple of things. One of which they they really try to bring in this idea of like a lot a lot of this, the 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 junior managers who are like trainee managers, etc., who are absolutely bored out of their minds all the time. It keeps bringing in things about how one of them was in a was in a sort of anti corporate scar 
punk band in, in his youth, etc. These sorts of things, taking the piss out of it. And everyone really wants to be a craft beer, a craft beer, you know, he makes craft beer, he wants to produce craft beers and all these sorts of stuff. That whole idea of like, you know, it really taking the piss out of the idea that like we may work for this corporation, we may have these boring office jobs, but like really we want to do, we want to do this other thing sort of thing. But it, basically there's no room for that at all. And then the interesting moment comes with this, where they introduce a parody of their own show so like they have this water cooler moment show that everybody's talking about called society tomorrow basically which has an evil corporation taking over everything etc matt oh you almost ran into me oh sorry i was just thinking about society tomorrow God, it really gets in your head doesn't it like in that episode it reaches its limit point because it, you know there's a scientist in that who works for the for the corporation right in a bit you know a bit like the it crowd right right at the bottom in the in the cellars of this is is somebody actually doing actual work rather than just managing and doing office stuff a bullshit job sort of thing she doesn't want to watch this society tomorrow she sort of critiques it and then she's got this line going oh in real life there's no diabolical ceo with a plan to destroy the world basic ineptitude and people trying their best is what leads to the daily horrors that people deal with you know even at its most anti-capitalist critique sort of moment it draws back from that structural critique it's that thing of like look it's almost like a sort of like cynical panglossianism you know eve basically it's just ordinary people just incompetent people basically trying to do their best you know we end up in this hell there is no possibility of something better basically there's no structural critique in it and so there's no idea that you could get outside this world and do something different just that limit point, basically, of the of virtually all of these anti-work, anti-corporate shows. And then the final show I want to talk about isn't really a comedy either, although it's got comedic elements. You you definitely wouldn't... Yeah, you would say it's got comedy within it, basically, or comedic and absurdist elements in it, which is this show called Severance from last year. Hi, Ellie. Oh, what's happening? Great to see you. Your orientation's been so much fun. Where am I? Okay, so sometimes when a new hire is adjusting to a severed space, we help by bringing them here to the stairwell to experience the transition viscerally. Oh, no. Look, fair warning, listeners, Severance is one of those shows where spoilers might actually spoil your enjoyment, so you can stop listening now if you want. Severance is what you is you know that's a sort of, sort of you, severance is getting sacked and uh, the compensation you might get paid for getting sacked. It took, people talk about severance and in this that is overlaid with this idea of severance. So the the, the setup for the show is this: is that like, some new te- technology has been developed which can sever your work life experiences and eventually persona from your home life experiences. Sever so that each one of those has no recollection at all of what goes on in the other one and and develop into their own distinct personalities basically so you've got they call innies are like the people the work personalities and outies are the the out of work personality and as it goes on you sort of realize that basically the innies are slaves of the outies basically and that the 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 conceit of the show is there's this new innie that gets wakes up as an innie with no memory of like like past life etc works out what's going on and is constantly trying to escape because she realizes she's a slave for the outie basically so she's trying to send messages to the outie 
and then trying to even trying to kill herself to, or a suicide attempt in order to convey to the outie that she wants out of this thing basically and of course if she gets out of this thing that the innie's persona will disappear which would be death sort of thing but it's really really good on you know if there's no outside of life uh, outside of work what how do you get motivation and they they have all of these like tiny little rewards such as these little toys such as finger traps or they have um, waffle parties etc so it's got that that other critique going on i would highly recommend that you watch it it's a really really great great series basically once again very dark even though it's got comedic moments and that was kia's birthday (laughs) join us this time next year when i will be going through my comic collection (laughs) (laughs) this is (laughs) 